So here we are again, another text and sermon about love. And in our Gospel reading, supported by our other readings, two concepts emerge as the primary topic of the soon-to-be-crucified Jesus, love and abiding. And he hammers away at these concepts using ideas, metaphors, and confronting questions. Ideas and metaphors like, I am the vine, you are the branches. My father is the wine grower. I am in you and you're in me. I am in the father and the father is in me. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. I give you a new commandment. Love one another. As the father has loved you, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. This longing for love is a universal longing. Everyone is born with that longing. It's in our DNA. And I want to suggest that it is a significant part, if not all, of the divine image in us. However, our experience often rubbles over this longing, and we naturally become protective of our hearts because we've been hurt in love. We still like the idea of love, But our armor is always worn to ward off the painful arrows of love. Because to love is to open yourself up to suffering. And so consequently, we are tempted to see our longing for love almost as a weakness, something to be ashamed of. The longing seems needy or even codependent. And so we protect ourselves by saying we should actually be okay on our own, be confident, and suppress this deep and painful longing for love. And then if we happen to find love, that would be okay. Or we grasp after it and make bad choices. This Mother's Day, I want to suggest that our longing for love is not a weakness. I want to define it as wisdom. Numbing our loneliness is a path to despair that tortures our culture. We are not meant to be alone and self-sufficient, although we are also not meant to be abusively codependent. And science backs this up, just as our text these past few weeks does. Eli Finkel, a major researcher in the field of relationships and attraction, says that the quality of your closest relationships affects your happiness about twice as much as your career or even your health. Just the touch of someone you care for and trust lowers your blood pressure and reduces pain. We are meant to be connected. And in fact, it's the people who care the most about connection and often who feel the most longing for it when it's missing who are, he says, the healthiest people of all. So this myth that tells us that it is a weakness to need love teaches us to be ashamed of our vulnerability. And shame around our vulnerability is the death knell to healthy love. We need to be able to bear and tolerate and express and handle our vulnerability if we're going to be able to experience love. And also, when we suppress our need for love, it turns often into neediness. 
and need suppression makes us either withdrawn or manipulative. You can only hold your breath for so long. You can only stay underwater for so long. Ultimately, hidden or shamed need comes up, and if not noticed and acknowledged, it will come up in a foreign place. It will come up sideways in ways that are not life-giving. For Jesus, this hammering about away about love continues even after the resurrection as well as now. For example, the resurrected Christ asks Peter three times, directly and in public, Peter, do you love me? Awkward, especially with all the other disciples sitting around the breakfast table. And often talk of love is awkward, for if we have rejected or wounded someone, we are tempted with guilt. And if we have been rejected or wounded, we are tempted with shame. And guilt says, I did something wrong. Shame says, I am wrong. Peter likely felt both as he said, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Now let's change the subject. However, the word for love that Christ uses in this passage is a different word than what Peter responds with. And it wasn't lost on Peter that Jesus repeated his question three times, just as Peter previously denied him three times. When Jesus asks Peter, do you love me, he uses the Greek word agape which refers to unconditional love. Unconditional love is love that transcends and persists regardless of circumstances. Here, regardless of the fact that Peter denied Christ. And each time, Peter, instead of responding with agape, says, yes, Lord, you know I love you, he uses the Greek word phileo, which refer, refers more to brotherly friendship a sort of kindred type of love. And it seems that Jesus is trying to get Peter to understand that he is invited to love Jesus unconditionally, agape. Now, the third time Jesus asks, do you love me? He, too, uses the word phileo, friendship love. And Peter again responds with, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you, and again uses phileo, friendship love. The point in the different Greek words for love seems to be that Jesus was stretching Peter to move him from a phileo love based on agape love. And obviously the ultimate is unconditional love, agape. And the bottom line for Jesus is that this is the ideal and is the description of God's love for us. However, now he links phileo and agape, unconditional love and friendship love, when he says, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. In effect, Jesus is saying, I know agape, unconditional love is the ideal, but ideals carry an overwhelming expectation and fear of not measuring up. So I am calling you friends so that you won't feel guilty when you don't honor these ideals. 
I'm calling you friends so that you know that I am with you in your quest for love. You, I, my Father God are linked in this friendship that is founded on unconditional love. Never give up seeking this love, just as I will never give up reassuring you that you are loved unconditionally. Now Jesus and eventually Peter understood that love is more nuanced in our experience, despite our ideals. Mother's Day or Father's Day is a prime example. These are easy and wonderful celebrations if we've experienced a loving, caring mother or father. But they're confusingly hard if we didn't have a loving, caring father or mother. And yet all of us still have this ideal image of motherhood and fatherhood imprinted in our souls as a longing. And so it creates an awkwardness, these celebrations, for us collectively, because we want to be sensitive to all the experiences of motherhood and fatherhood. And so our love experiences vary all the way from the unconditional to, at best, being grateful that our parents birthed us, or perhaps even anger and hurt that we struggle to get beyond. And so the contrast between our longing and our experience creates pain, suffering. And this is further complicated in English, because English only has one word for love, and and hence our tentativeness in expressing and receiving love. We're unsure what we're communicating or unsure of what the other person is communicating when we say or hear, I love you. Robert Johnson expresses this anxiety about love in this way. He says that the language Sanskrit has 96 words for love. 96. Ancient Persian has 60. Greek has three, maybe four. And English has only one. This is indicative, he says, of the poverty of awareness or emphasis that we give to that tremendously important realm of feeling and longing. Eskimos, he says, have 30 words for snow because it is, life, it is a life and death matter to them to have exact information about the element they live so intimately with. If we had a vocabulary of 30 words for love, we would immediately be richer and more intelligent in this human element that is so close to our hearts. An Eskimo probably would die of clumsiness if he only had one word for snow. And we, he says, are close to dying of loneliness because we only have one word for love. Of all the Western languages, English may be the most lacking when it comes to feeling. Us English speakers have to guess from the context what is meant when someone says or we say, I love you. Or we have to use adjectives. I love you like a brother. I love you like a sister. I love you in the Lord. My son or daughter know what I mean when I say I love you. They also know that it means something different when I say I love you to Lynn or to a close friend or to a brother or a sister. But it gets awkward when that role or context is not yet established 
and so we hesitate to express it or receive it, for we're unsure what it means or how it will be heard, and so it becomes safer to detach or avoid it. And yet it seems Jesus is saying, don't avoid it. Love is central. Now, perhaps this is where the word abiding becomes significant in our text. We're all looking for love and wanting to be loved, but the difficulty is this abiding. It means enduring, lasting, sustaining, always available. And here I want to suggest a metaphor. I want you to imagine a swimming pool filled not with water but with divine love. And when we find the courage to dive in, we find ourselves in a new and different world, refreshing, quiet, cut off from the noise and distractions of the world, supportive, a place where we are upheld by love. Jesus is talking about a love that transcends and persists regardless of the circumstances. Now, this doesn't mean we should feel guilty when we find it hard to stay in the pool. Experience will inevitably draw us out of the pool. Jesus, too, had experiences for periods of time like that, where he didn't transcend his circumstances. Take this cup from me, he cried. And then he got back in the pool and yielded. Not my will, but thine be done. Experiencing abandonment on the cross, he said, My God, why have you forsaken me? And then, in the midst of this excruciating suffering, he said, It is finished. Into your hands I commend my spirit. Life experience will often draw us out of the pool, away from the absolute love of God. But the pool is always there, and knowing this is faith. And in confession, we come back to this eternal reality of who we are. We are loved. And if we confess our failings in agape love, God is always available to forgive us our failings because we are no longer slaves or servants. We're friends. And that my friends, is what we are called to be and do for one another. We may for a time say about others or even ourselves, God loves you, but the rest of us think you're an idiot or worse. But we are commanded to find a place where we finally jump back into the pool and say, okay, this is hard, but God loves you, so I will choose to move towards loving you too. And this love even includes our enemies. I do notice that this confessional process becomes both easier and more significant as I find myself constantly drawn out of the pool and then back in again. And this abiding that Jesus is talking about is telling us that ultimately our home, our identity, dwells in the love of God, even when our experience tells us something else. Often these words of Jesus about love, both before his crucifixion and after, 
are seen as his farewell discourses, his last will and testament. I'm going away, and this is what I wish to happen with all that was my life here on earth. And so in the Gospel of John, we begin to notice that phileo and agape are used almost interchangeably or certainly connected. Unconditional love and friendship become linked. God loves us because that is God's absolute nature. But God also likes us because we are also God's friends. And this friendship love is not based on appeasing or living up to some expectations, nor is it motivated by utility or networking or mutual admiration or similar ideas, status, education, capacity, etc. All the things that make up our cultural superior or superiority of identity or identity. This love is a given, an absolute unconditional friendship that we are invited to come home to, to abide in, always returning to the pool of God's love. Whenever our experience of love feels like a crucifixion, we are invited back into the pool of resurrection the place where absolute, unconditional love and friendship are always available. May we have the courage to get over our guilt and shame and daily jump back in. This, my friends, is abiding. This is love. And this is our new commandment. Amen.